And I'm Dave. And you're listening to the Doctor Who Show, where, at long last, 10 episodes into our second series and 35 years after he started the role, we're going to take a look at the greatest era in Doctor Who history, the Davo era. Dave, hello. You're a little bit excited, aren't you, Rob? I'm a wee bit excited, yes. We finally get to just indulge in your favourite Doctor. I know, it's been a long time coming, like I just alluded to, and even the past few weeks where we've been saying, okay, so our next episode is Dave, and we'll talk about this, we'll talk about that, I've been so excited making these notes. Well, let's hope that it's all worth it. How have you been? I've been well. The weather is really starting to warm up, although that said, tomorrow we're going to have torrential rain and it's going to be cold, but up until tomorrow, it's been really hot of late. Yeah, spring is definitely here. Now, can I just tell you something really funny that happened literally before we started recording? The New Zealand election. No, that wasn't funny. (laughs) (laughs) That was a tragedy. But anyway, as I sat down to Wolf Down Dinner before we started recording, I put on an episode of The Bill just to watch as background noise for 25 minutes. Right. Who should turn up as the judge but Nicholas Courtney? No, really? Really. And then at the end of the episode, I'd never noticed this before, but in the background, the two barristers are just sort of, you know, derobing in the barristers' room and they're chatting. Oh, yes, I'll see you at the club. Well, I yes, don't forget to invite the brigadier. (laughs) Oh, that's nice. So someone clearly on that set was a Doctor Who fan and made a little mention of Nick Courtney's famous role there. So I thought it was really cool. Courtney would have chuckled. (laughs) That's right. He would have loved that. Well, we've got a ton of stuff to get through tonight, so shall we quickly kick over to the news and then move on? Look, we shall. We've only got one piece of news this month, which, let's face it, is a reflection of the fact we're probably as far away now from Doctor Who as we're going to be in terms of the Christmas special aside. We've had the end of the season, we've had the big casting announcement, and now we're sort of just drifting off into that dark period before we start to get all the rumours and the excitement building in late next year about the new series. We're, we're, we're really at midnight, aren't we? Oh, for sure. And because what about that Bradley Walsh news? We still don't know anything. Another month on. Yeah, so maybe that was just all bunkum to start with. Or they're still keeping it up their sleeve. I have no idea. Speaking of things we have no idea about, that brings us to our main news item. <laughs> yes. Because there was a big splash in the mirror and an article that leads off with Changes to new Doctor Who series starring Jodie Whittaker revealed a show boss's plot, quote, fresh and brilliant revamp. Not that I think many TV show bosses ever, you know, plan a (laughs) sour and lacklustre revamp. Yeah, or boring revamp, yes. Yeah, so they're going for a fresh and brilliant revamp. And I read this article and I got really excited because they were talking about going to 10 one-hour episodes. They're talking about having more stuff in the past and all these little things. And I thought, oh, that's really good. That's really good. And then I mentioned it to you. And tell us how you burst my balloon, Rob. (laughs) 
I guess I took the piss a bit, <laughs> Dave, by saying, oh, so she's going to go to the future and the past. Oh, my. <laughs> That's new for <laughs> Doctor Who. Wow. And then, you know, I was just taking the piss in general, like a new TARDIS, a new sonic screwdriver. This is stuff a non-fan could make up. I think the most interesting thing was, oh, it might be 10 episodes and they could be 60 minutes long. But even that seems weird because how would foreign sales go in places where they need to insert adverts and stuff like that? I'm not sure it's as straightforward as they can make 60-minute episodes. That's more of a, a Netflix thing or an HBO thing or something like that where they don't have adverts. That's right, at which point I realised that I was taking a very speculative article and getting way too excited about what is probably not true. But all that said, look, if it is true, I'll, I'll be very happy. I think that the one thing that I think New Who has lacked has occasionally been that space to really breathe within an episode, mm. that chance to really get those lovely little character moments that I think helps to define a lot of the classic series. And maybe an extra 18 minutes on the end of it will help that. If it happens. Yeah, well, look, a good example of that is that Rona Munro story set up in Scotland. I've already forgotten its name. Eaters of Light. Eaters of Light, that's the one. And I was saying at the time, we didn't really get to know some of the characters that well. Another 15 to 18 minutes, gosh, that could have really fleshed the characters out a bit more as well. Yeah, so I think that there is room for that. I'm a big fan of the historicals, so if they are doing more historicals, I'm happy with that. But let's face it, this is our only piece of news this month, and it's... Very, very speculative. Oh, for sure. And we should say we're recording this episode a wee bit earlier in the month, about a week earlier than normal. So something good could break in the next week and it just won't be on this show at the end of the month. Uh, yes, my fault for having to go to Canberra again next week. Sorry. Not to worry. Shall we move on to our minor topics for the episode? Yeah, so I wanted to bring a couple up. I'm going to start off with just mentioning that in the last month, I've reread for probably the fifth or sixth time the Doctor Who book, Who Killed Kennedy. Mm. Are you familiar with this one, Rob? I believe I actually own it and have never read it. Okay, you need to read this because it is the most wonderfully creative but wonderfully fan-wankery novel. <laughs> and just this pure classic fan indulgence. It's written from the point of view of a London Fleet Street journalist mm -hmm. who is working in the early 1970s. And it's all about him experiencing the late Trout and early Perwy era from a reporter's perspective. So he actually gets sent along to the Ashbridge Cottage Hospital and he's one of the reporters there who's interviewing the Brigadier in that part one. Right, okay. Um, now you get to the Silurians and do you remember the line in the Silurians right towards the end of part seven where the Brigadier's doing all these phone calls? And he picks one up and says, The Daily What? How did you get this number? Yes, I do, actually. In the book, the reporter's the guy on the other end. Ah, uh, okay. So this is the fan wank aspect. This is the fan wank. But it also it's, talks about how people cover stuff up and how it's sort of sold to the public. But this reporter starts to go, well, who's this Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart guy that always turns up? And who's this unit group that always seemed to be there where really bad stuff happens and then covers everything up and we're not allowed to print stuff about? And mm. what's, the, what's the government hiding? And then it's, who's this doctor guy? And right. hang on, didn't I read about him doing something in the in Shoreditch in the 1960s? And this reporter then starts to look into Unit as though Unit's some sort of evil secret government organisation. And I won't tell you any more of the plot, 
But it's really clever and it's really fun to look at Doctor Who from that perspective. Yeah, it's one of those books I've known as a, an interesting kind of book to read. I think I've even heard other people describe it as fan wank as well. It, it sits on my shelf alongside things like the Decalogue short story books that I've known are good and I've just never gotten around to reading. I'm one of these people who thinks I need that, I want that, I'll read that in two years' time and I just buy it all and put it on the shelf until I'm ready. So I think it's one of those for me. I'm sure I own it. Well, I encourage you to read it. And speaking of Doctor Who novels, can I give a plug to the Doctor Who novels Twitter account, which is a very simple concept. Once a day, this Twitter account, it's at Doctor Who novels, all spelled out, just puts up three or four Doctor Who books. They target novels or Virgin books or BBC books. and just ask you to vote which one's best. And from that flows a whole lot of wonderful conversation between fans about which book they love and which one they remember and why they like it. And it's just a really fun little indulgent feed for those who like Doctor Who books. So check out at Doctor Who Novels. I've really enjoyed following them. Oh, how interesting. Is is that a bot doing that and then fans discuss or is there someone behind the account who does some of the discussing? No, no, there's definitely someone behind the account because they get quite narky sometimes when we pick the wrong book. Oh, <laughs> okay, I'll look into this. Yeah, have a, have a look at it. All right, a quick bit of, uh, I guess, news from me. I've had another good find of Doctor Who magazines at a really good price. Uh, people might recall a few months ago, I found a bunch of uh, Doctor Who weeklies, and I got them for about like 20 cents each, I think was the final <laughs> the final amount. These uh, magazines have cost me a bit more, like 2 and $3 each, but compared to what they're selling for overseas, like $10, $15 for some back issues, it's crazy. And they're local, so the postage was great. So I've just grown my collection by about another 40 magazines. So Rob, when you buy these, do you sit down and just work your way through them and actually read them, or do they just go and sit in their place on the shelf? Uh, it's unfortunately the latter, only because I don't have a lot of time rather than interest. I have huge interest in, in reading, particularly some of the comic strips from the 90s issues that I missed. Yes. And it's one of those things where, like the books, like my Who Killed Kennedy, like my Decalogues, I will get around to it one day, I promise. Maybe when I stop podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's all right, because occasionally I do dip into some of my old DWMs, and it is really interesting just to look at the way that they reported Doctor Who then, and particularly in the... the, the in the 90s, where it was just looking back at a series that was gone. Yeah, I know. And there are people out there, I know, because we even know some of them, who have a lot of the back issues as PDFs. They've scanned them and, and given the magazines away. But I, I like the physical magazines. I, I still love that tactile, I'm opening something from 1986 or from 1994 or whatever the year might be. Yeah, I agree with that. Definitely agree with that. So one other thing I wanted to mention, and this is a continuation from last month, you recall I was watching underrated six-part stories for no particular reason. I do. And several people on Twitter were kind enough to tweet to me and challenge me to watch The Chase, which I didn't mind at all because I really enjoy The Chase. Oh, look, ditto for me. I, I don't understand the hate for it out there. Look, watching it again, you, you can't ignore the fact that it is flawed. Even for a 1960s Doctor Who production, there are a lot of goofs and mistakes and loose ends, whether it's the infamous camera in the jungle or shots not quite working or the android copy of the Doctor that doesn't look anything like the, <laughs> like the Doctor. <laughs> you know, there, there are faults in there, but it is a really fun and enjoyable story. So I was very happy to watch that one. And I'm not even sure, is the chase still underrated? I think so. 
I think that's fair to say. I mean, there are people like you and me who like it. And I know there are other people out there because recently our, our mates at Prog to Who did it. And some people made similar comments to me, which is the episodes go from place to place and, and different scenario to different scenario. It keeps you interested. It's not like one of these Pertwees where they stand in a control room for, you know, six or seven episodes. It's it's really fast moving. There's always something happening. And you've got Ian and Barbara leaving and Stephen Taylor arrives. And, and, you know, everyone talks about that Dalek coming out of the sand and you get to see that. And, you know, so many classic moments are actually in the chase. How can you not like it? Yeah, so I was very happy to watch that one. But I've been issued a challenge for next month, Rob. Oh, what what is that? Well, Stephen from New to Who and I were just chatting um, privately over social media. We we took a bit of a discussion sort of into private territory where we could really thrash out some issues. And we mm. were talking about the Dominators. Ooh, and yes. We were, and we were sort of having a discussion about, is it just a slightly poor, slightly naff, but kind of harmless, fun story or does it actually have some deeper problems or and all the rest of that and i suddenly realized i haven't watched the dominators for about 12 years so so how can i argue about it yeah true so i've been set the challenge in the next month go and re-watch the dominators it's five parts not six but I'll, i'll allow it and have a really good look at what works and what doesn't so i'll be back next month with that report if i if i succeed Right. Well, I've watched that during the past 12 months and I came away from it rooting for the Dominator. So I don't know what that says about me or the episode <laughs> or both. <laughs> I suspect I might too. But yeah, I'll be, I'll be interested to have a look. It's good to see stories again. Okay. Dave, can I find a drum roll sound effect? I'm sure there must be one on the internet somewhere. So here we are, Dave. We're going to talk about... Davo at long last. We are, and we're actually going to talk about Peter Davison. And when we say that, we actually want to talk about him. Sure, we'll go off on tangents. We'll talk about his era, other people in his era. But this is a conversation we wanted to have about Peter Davison, not about John Nathan Turner, and not about Eric Saywood, and not about Janet Fielding, mm. and not about Terence Dudley or any of those. We really want to look at this focused in on Davison and the Fifth Doctor. Yeah, I'm sure those people will get a mention, but they won't be our focus. That's right, that's right. We won't really want to keep it to, to Davo. All right. Let's start off with a short, uninterrupted statement from each of us about Davo. Who should go first, Dave? Look, he's your favourite. You set the tone. Okay. Folks, Davo, as you know, is my doctor. When I was recruited into the local fan club, and by that I mean the the local area fan club, not the uh, Australasian Doctor Who fan club as it was at the time, back in February of 1987, they kept a file of your favourite Doctor and companion. They sort of had a dossier on all the members. It was kind of creepy, actually. (laughs) And in my entry, the file said Davo and Tegan. Well, it actually said the fifth Doctor and Tegan. I didn't call him Davo at the time. So while I appreciate that some people change their Doctor over the years for whatever reason, and I've certainly changed my favourite companion over the years it's no longer tegan not by a long shot davo has been my doctor officially for a very long time it's 30 years since 1987 after all and i guess at the end of the day davo is to me the classic era doctor probably most like my personality And as a consequence, the Doctor, I think I'd get along with the best. I think Hartnell would frustrate me a bit. 
Troughton wouldn't be too bad, to be honest. Pertwee would probably be a bit pompous. Tom would be a bit too out there. Colin would be unlikable. And Sylv would probably have some dark plans for me and something bad would happen. Whereas with... <laughs> Whereas with his pleasant, open face and agreeable nature, I think I would have travelled very well with the Davison Doctor. He's charming, he's good-natured. Perry would say he's sweet, and to me he's just a likeable dude. He's normal. And that might be actually a point of criticism for some people, but for me, it's actually why I like him so much. That was very nice. Thank you very much. I'm going to have my little opening spiel here, and mine's going to be different. And I've divided this up into three segments, and hopefully you'll understand why in a moment. The first segment is... The Davison era are my earliest memories of Doctor Who. I can remember the cliffhanger of Snake Dance Part 1. I can remember the capsule both inside and out from Mordred Undead. I can remember the malice from The Awakening. Only as a sort of a two or three year old, just memories, just images in my mind. After that, I didn't see a lot of Davo for a long time. Most of his era was before we had a VCR, and certainly before we were recording stuff, so we only had a couple of his episodes plus the five Doctors on tape. I was then able to watch and remember the Colin Baker era. We watched and kept all of the McCoy era on tape. We had endless repeats of some Trout and all of Pertwee and most of Tom. But the Davison era really wasn't repeated that much out here, so I didn't see a lot of it. And, you know, when I got into local fandom, it wasn't, you know, you didn't go and tape swap for Davo. You went and tape swapped for the Toms you didn't have or for those 60s stories with the Daleks and the Sidemen you didn't have. Plus, he wasn't out on VHS other than the five Doctors, which we already had. So... He was very unknown to me when I was younger. In my main part of active fandom, so my teenage to 20s sort of period, I I by then had seen all of Davison, but it would have been the last era that I really saw properly. And my impression of him was that the era was very flat. There weren't a lot of clunkers. There were lots of good stories, in fact, but it was very even. And there weren't a lot of classics either. I just thought there were lots of very good, reasonably fun, okay stories. And it was very flat and bland, and I thought he was very flat and bland, and was kind of dismissive of him. That's the way it sat for a long time until 2013, and this is the final phase, when myself and my good friend Richard took over the Doctor Who Club here again, leading up to the 50th anniversary. And we decided that as part of 2013, that 50th anniversary year, we would divide Doctor Who up into seven pieces and do a meeting focused on each one of them. So one of those meetings was... Uh, season 18 of Tom and the, all of the Davison era, which meant suddenly I had to watch a lot of Davison again. Stuff that I might have watched once in the last 15 or 20 years, I was watching again. Stories that I would never just go back and watch casually, I forced myself to go and watch as research. And I found myself appreciating the Davison era so much more, and Davison particularly so much more. There is no other Doctor who, as I have aged in the last 10 years or so, has gone up so high in my estimation. He's gone from me being dismissive to me having a huge regard and respect for his talents as an actor. And it, it is amazing how my perception of him in this last, even just this last four years, has really turned around. Now, I still have a lot of problems with his era, but I've learned to love other parts of his era. We'll, we'll thrash that out. But yeah, I've gone from Davison being unknown to being dismissed to being very highly regarded as an actor. Doctor Wise, less for Rise, but also a Rise. So that's where I am, Rob. Oh, I've never bit my tongue for so long on one of these podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was re- that's really actually interesting to, to hear because I know what some of my notes are uh, coming up in this episode, and I think we're going to have a real lot to, to thrash out there. But we'll get to that when we get to that. 
I think we should kick off with talking about Davo before Doctor Who and and briefly what he did. For example, he did TV series like Love for Lydia, Holding the Fort, Sink or Swim, none of which I've seen. Have you seen them, Dave? Uh, the one of those that I've seen is I've seen a few episodes on YouTube of Holding the Fort, and I mainly checked that one out because as well as being a fan of Davo, his co-star was, of course, Patricia Hodge, who was a very glamorous barrister in Rumpole of the Bailey. They are both very good in this series, but it is very much a, a one-joke wonder series, I'm sorry to say. Right. Some other things he did, though, he popped up as a fairly unrecognisable dish of the day in Hitchhiker's Guide, and, of course, he was in All Creatures Great and Small. We were an All Creatures Great and Small family, Dave, so that's where I knew him from. Yeah, I was going to say exactly the same thing. When I was a, a boy, All Creatures Great and Small on a Saturday night was one of those shows that the family, you know, you had your Saturday night roast, the fire was lit, and you sat around and you watched All Creatures Great and Small. And Peter Davison's character, Tristan Farnan, definitely stands out for me as a very memorable character. Clearly it had an impression on my parents as well, but given that Peter Davison played the character of Tristan, and my first two names are David and Tristan. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I'll put it that way, but it's certainly interesting. Oh, come on. It's a great name. It's German. It's operatic. It's wonderful. I have learned to like it more as a guy, but nobody likes the middle name, do they? Yeah, I guess. Mine's Cameron. I'm sorry. <laughs> now, I read the James Herriot books um, in the 80s and, and grew up watching the show, reading the books, and Tristan, to me, was just this great character. He was the guy who could booze all night and then he'd be first up in the morning for a fry-up and have no side effects and be all cheery while James was like, ugh, staggering around and all still all groggy. And I thought that was very admirable as a prepubescent and I would think, you know, when I get on the booze in the future, I want to be like Tristan. <laughs> yeah, he is the character that makes the show work because James Herriot and Siegfried Farnan are both very po-faced and very serious vets. And you need Tristan Farnan in there to actually make this show work and add a bit of life and a bit of spontaneity and something for the others to really bounce off. He's incredibly memorable in that, given it's his first really big part. It's quite impressive how good he is. Oh, absolutely. And uh, from that, of course, he springboards into Doctor Who. So, well, well, we have to make one mention, though. Yes. The Tomorrow People episodes are Husband for Emily. <laughs> this is a long time before all creatures. It is, but we can't go on without mentioning it because he tries his best in that part. But that is, I think these are possibly the worst episodes of the Tomorrow People. And he has a terrible character in there. And if you ever get a chance, just watch one of them. I think there's four or five in that story because it is just hilariously bad. Do you know if it's up on YouTube or anything? Uh, I don't know if it is. I've, I've got the box set of the Tomorrow People. Ah, uh, but if you can check it out, I do encourage you. A Husband for Emily, it's called. Okay. Moving on to Doctor Who. Let's quickly go over, you know, Davo's costume, what he was inheriting, what the production team was like and so on. We won't go too deep, but just to set the scene, I guess the first thing to say is the show had only just been rejigged the previous season. So Davo sort of got an inherited credit sequence from Tom's last season with the Starfield and the new music. Yeah, he does. And there's something very interesting about that season because season 18 which i love it's one of my top two or three seasons is very dynamic and you can feel jnt is a new producer but also barry letts as the executive producer and christopher hamilton bidmead as the script editor all three of them want to make that something really energized and special season 19 bidmead leaves and they get a temporary script editor for a while in anthony root jnt is now settled down into the role and he's still very keen to do it well but 
it's not that first dynamic year and Barry Letts has left. Rob, do you think that they take their foot off the gas a bit in season 19? That's a really interesting question because my notes for when we get to it are broadly that it's my favourite season and I think it succeeds in spite of itself and having that mix of script editors and people writing and, you know, maybe being a bit haphazard, I think creates a really interesting season. I think it's when they get their act together, ironically, in the next season and say, well, this is what we'll do and we'll have returning monsters and we'll do this and we'll do that. It's it's not as good. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think the comment there that I really latched onto was it succeeds in spite of itself. Because I don't disagree that there's a lot of good stories in there and Davison does very well. But I do get this feeling that compared to the energy of 18, there is a little bit of taking the foot off the gas there. Mm, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. I guess they had a lot to prove that, that season. Now, can I say something potentially controversial now, Rob? Mm, please. I think that Peter Davison's costume is the worst costume of any Doctor. Oh, that is a big call. I mean, it's not great, I'll say that much up front, but worse than Collins? Yes, and let me tell you why, and then you can tell me if I've persuaded you or not. Okay. First of all, I think that Colin's costume has become a little bit of a get-out for fans who love Colin the actor, want to love his era but can't, and so they say, oh, it was all the costume's fault. Sorry, that's just too cheap. Yes, Colin's costume is garish. Yes, it forces some other things to be garish, but that's okay. Forcing energy and colour and interest into something isn't a crime. In contrast, Davison's costume is bland. It is a bland shade of cream with a background of bland cream with a bland sort of washed out red lapels and some pyjama bottoms. You know, it is just bland, bland, bland. And that sets the tone, I think, for a lot of the design around him that feels a little bit more bland or that feels a little bit washed out. And it, it, it makes you assume his character is a little bit more bland than it really should be. And I, I think that being loud and brash, okay, yep, Collins is too loud and brash, but I'd rather that than bland. Mm, okay. I'll start off by saying my biggest beef with it is that it's not a cricket outfit at all. He's always portrayed as, oh, he's an Edwardian cricketer. And aside from the jumper, nothing else is from a cricket uniform. <laughs> You know, no, that's true. The pants aren't. The cricketers never wore striped pants. I once did a big research on this to see if that was a thing. No, they never wore striped pajama pants like that. Uh, his shoes are sneakers. They're sort of like old-fashioned cricket boots, but they don't have spikes. They have rubber soles. They're not really like that. The shirt's wrong, and the frock coat. What's with that? He should be in a in a blazer, and it should be like a striped blazer, like a like a cricket club would have, like you sort of see Ford Prefect wearing in Hitchhiker's Guide. Yes. You know, it should be that sort of thing. And I think if they dressed Peter more in a more conventional 1920s way, he would have looked the business. He would have looked outstanding. Yeah, I agree. And what you said was absolutely right. Ford Prefect's costume from the, what, 81, 82 Hitchhiker's TV series, whatever year that mm, was, yep. that, that would have been perfect because it is slightly eccentric, it is very English, but it has colour and it looks real. Yeah. Now, that said, in the 80s, I really liked the costume. I thought it was really cool. I I just thought it suited him and, and I liked it. And something we'll get to later in this episode is the concept of your memory sticking. You know, when you're a kid, 
your memory sticks on what you liked and why you liked it. And as an adult, it's hard to shift those thoughts sometimes. So although I can see it's not a cricket outfit, and although I don't think it's a good outfit now, I still have this sort of, what's the word? It's not like, but it's... Nostalgia? Yeah, yeah, it's nostalgia, I think. And it's hard for me to really rag on it, even though I can see all the problems with it. I still think Colin's got a terrible costume, though. He looks like a clown. Oh, well, I've, I've, I've given you my, my view. Yeah, look, I think we'll agree to disagree, but I, I do see the problems with the costume. I do see them even if I can't bring myself to, to fully bag it out. Fair enough. So I've got other comments, but they sit quite nicely into season 19. So shall we dive into that? Well, before we do, we should also mention his companions because he picks up uh, a trio of companions right from the start and two of them are brand new and one of them is not really a veteran in the form of Adric, which immediately makes you think of the Hartnell era. Suddenly the Doctor's got three companions again. Unfortunately, they're not like a family like the Hartnell companions. They're, they're all just young people who don't want to be there. Yeah, look, I think it was really a mistake for JMT to do this. I understand the theory that if you surround the Doctor with familiar characters, that helps to transition the audience from Tom Baker, who's you know so well-known and so iconic, and you know, for some people the only Doctor they've ever known, into Peter Davison. I get that. But it fails because, as you say, two of them are brand new characters anyway. So we're not transitioning with Tegan and Nyssa. We're trying to learn about the new Doctor and Tegan and Nyssa at the same time. Yeah. And, and the other problem I have is that, and I've said this before, I think Adric works really, really well with Tom. Tom as his mentor, as his sort of great uncle or whatever you want to put it, is actually a really good relationship. And Matthew Waterhouse works well with that. When the Doctor comes along, he's only really, you know, sort of five years older than Adric. And there isn't a relationship. And clearly Davison and Waterhouse didn't get on. I think Adric suffers because of that as well. And I think that's a great shame. Mm. Although I would say what we know of Tom offset, he was probably even less predisposed to talking to Matthew Waterhouse and being nice to him. Davison, I think, may have been more affable, even if they didn't get on. I think Davison's the kind of guy who's probably affable with everyone just to keep things, you know, smooth and moving. I think he's that kind of professional. So it's it's ironic that on-screen Tom came across as maybe, you know, getting on with him better when off-screen he probably didn't at all. Look, it is. And it's interesting now to read some of the literature from that era, um, particularly Matthew Waterhouse's uh, autobiography, Blue Box Boy, there clearly was also a lot of the case that because Peter Davison was such a star at this time, he had three or four series on the go, he wasn't hanging around the Doctor Who rehearsal rooms anyway. He would come in, do his lines, and then bugger off to another studio to record Sink and Swim or Hold in the Fourth or go into a media appearance or something. Mm. And so, yeah, he, he just wasn't around. I mean, it was such a big deal to have such a big name, but the corollary of that was he wasn't there to just immerse himself in the Doctor Who world, the way previous Doctors could. Yeah, that's right. So shall we move into Season 19 and discuss that in some detail? Yeah, we shall. So famously, Season 19 is the one that starts off badly planned because the opening story, uh, Zeta Minor, I think it was, or something like that, falls through while JMT's off in America. And suddenly he gets back and Barry Letts is sort of baking, walking out the door going, you terrible producer, don't forget, you know, don't you ever leave the country without a script ready to go again mm. and so because of that they have to move for to doomsday forward to be his first story which is basically by accident or well, the first story he records sorry while they go and plan for and write castrovalda which 
eventually gets retconned as, oh, it gives him a great chance to play the Doctor without it being his first story. But you're right, it was it was just because of what was going on behind the scenes. Yeah, so maybe it's serendipitous, I don't know, but it, it is a worry that his first story fell through. Like, that's, that's where the production office was at that time. Mm. Yeah, how does that happen? You know, how does that happen? Yeah, now... What do you make of Castrovalva, Rob, from the point of view of Davison's introduction? There's two answers to this. The one is when I was a kid, I just loved every every bit of it because it's the most broken up story, I think, of his era. Like the first episode, I don't think even mentions Castrovalva. We don't know anything about it. You know, it's called Castrovalva. First episode has nothing to do with it. Second episode, they're doing something else. It's only the, sec- the third and the fourth episodes, rather, where the Doctor... Is, is really up and about and doing things. So it's almost like a more episodic kind of piece than a complete story. And I kind of like that as a kid, although as an adult now I think, oh God, he's just not doing much for half this story. And, and then it's all sort of resolved in the last two episodes. And, you know, we all chuckle at Matthew Waterhouse trussed up in the Master's TARDIS and, and, the, <laughs> and the cherry picker that Anthony Anthony's on. <laughs> as he as he rises up to, to, to look at him. Uh, it's not a great story, but it's imaginative, and I find that, you know, quite good. Yeah, I'm almost the inverse of you. I look at it now, and I find it an incredibly imaginative story and a really interesting opening. When I first saw that as a kid, I reckon it would have been about 9 or 10 when that was repeated and I saw it. I was so bored, particularly in that first half. I was kind of like Millhouse watching the first episode of Poochie's Itchy and Scratchy. I'm just thinking, <laughs> when are they going to get to the fireworks factory? <laughs> and there's our Simpsons reference for the episode. <laughs> um, and, and look, it is an interesting choice to introduce the Doctor in a story where he's unconscious for the first two episodes, barely conscious for the third episode, and sort of recovering from a hangover for the fourth episode Mm, but as a kid though it's my first regeneration story so i'm seeing the doctor in the other doctor's clothes and that was wildly thrilling to me because he he shouldn't be in that costume that's not his costume oh wow you know and they were getting around in the tardis and finding these rooms and one looked like a cricket pavilion what was all that about you know i was just really excited by it interesting okay but again, that was as a kid. Yeah, no, it's interesting. We had very different reactions. I, I, I have a lot of respect for Castro Valva. I think it's a very poor opening for Davo. Fair enough. He, he doesn't get to come in and say, I'm the Doctor, let's do stuff. No, no, not at all. Not like, say, a, a Colin Baker who just sort of <laughs> leaps up and he's out and about and throttling Perry and all, all sorts of things are happening straight away. Yeah, it's a, it's a very slow start. Well, we'll just look at Tom in Robot. By halfway through part one, Tom's out investigating the, the site of the break the break-in. Yeah, exactly. That said, for to Doomsday, I really like him in that. I don't think it's a strong story for him, but particularly those opening scenes where he's wandering around and he's just really excited by the alien tech, like, oh, look at this, this is really cool. Oh, I love that. I think that's where you start to see a bit of the Doctor in him. Oh, absolutely. And... And the irony is it's the first time he's stepped out of the TARDIS, quite literally. That's right. <laughs> which, is, which is great. And a lot of people bag for to Doomsday. A lot of people pan it. Uh, but I think it has all these wild ideas going on, like all these Earth cultures being seized and taken on board. 
and they're turned into androids after their, you know, so-called flesh time, and Monarch wants to go back in time to find out if he's God. You know, there are the dodgy bits too, like Tegan knowing that very particular Aboriginal dialect, when I would say 99.999% of Australians don't speak Aboriginal at all, of any <laughs> variety. <laughs> so that's really weird, although people overseas always seem to think, oh, that's really good, that's inclusive. Tegan, Tegan would know that. Yeah, she's from Brisbane. She'd know that. No, no, she really wouldn't, people. <laughs> Trust us on that. You know, or her fashion drawing. But as an idea, the story's really imaginative. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier about season 19. I like the whole thing because everything just seems to be imaginative or, or at least interesting. And what I like about it as well is that as a boy, it was what space was meant to look like. Space was meant to be all gleaming metal and flashing lights. And the Davison era largely was. And I like that. Do you know, I've always, well, not always, but once I got a feel for what Hartnell stories were like, thought this was maybe a bit like a Hartnell story. Does that play into it for you somehow? Because I know you like Hartnell. Look, I think it does. I think actually a lot of season 19 is very, not Hartnell-less particularly, but but 60s. Uh, mm. You know, Black Orchid is a historical. The Visitation is a very sort of straightforward alien crashed on Earth story. They, they are very simple stories. And, and again, when you compare that to what had just come before, your full circles, your state of decays, Warriors Gate, Legopolis... Mm. You actually have got back to just some really nice, fun, simple stories. I don't know that, with possibly one exception, there's any. There's a really standout classic in there. In season nineteen, mm. Earthshock, and that was the one exception that I think I'd allow. Yeah, I, I think that is a classic, but it that feels more like season twenty in some ways. Yeah, true, true. It's it, do, it does stand out in that season. Oh, for sure, absolutely. But next in the season is Kinder, a story I love. <laughs> and, and, yes, and, likewise. And every time I rewatch it, I like it even more. And again, I think there's some, some imagination behind it. And the fact they're, they're in a forest in a studio, I don't care. You know, to me, it's fine. You know, I never really noticed. Really? Yeah. I, I, and partly because it was one of the Davisons I did see when I was very young. So I think about the first four Davisons repeated fairly early on. And I always now just see it through my, my child's eyes, and I never noticed it was a studio. It was just an alien planet. And again, I think Davison comes out really well here, and his relationship with the other characters is really good. And I don't know if you'd say his relationship with Todd is flirtatious, but it is a relationship that I couldn't see another Doctor having. No, probably not. Partly because of, you know, the, the earlier Doctors... Oh, um, as soon as I say this, you'll think of, like, Hartnell in the Aztecs or something, but the earlier Doctors really weren't sexual at all, and I'm not saying that Davo is sexual here, but just that that added frisson because he's so young, I guess. Uh, yeah, and he's also, he's also less dominating as a character. Mm. And so it does allow for other characters to have a more equal relationship with him. Yeah, I mean, his relationship with Todd, I I have often thought, oh, she'd be a really good companion compared to the other three. I'm going to disagree because, to me, the companion should never overshadow the Doctor. Okay. And I think she would actually overshadow the Doctor. I, I think it's hard enough for Peter Davison as a very young man to get away from the other companions he has. It's it, it, the, the TARDIS crew does feel in this season like four equals, not the Doctor... And his companions, it's the TARDIS crew. Mm. Okay, I can see that. I, I guess I was thinking, like, Nyssa is 
meant to be a scientist and meant to know all this stuff, but comes across as a wet blanket more often than not. Whereas here, here's someone who can science it up and they're really, really likable. <laughs> oh, they're very likable, but yeah, would she have overshadowed the walk? We'll never know. We'll yeah, we'll never know. The Visitation. I really like this. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure why. That that filmic quality is really good. The pteroleptals are cool. I, I can't really remember, though, what Davo does other than get locked up and... Is this the start of that sort of trope of Davo being a little bit... Um, not out of control, but sort of being buffeted by the story? Yes. I know what you're trying to say. He, he gets locked up a lot in this. Uh, the, the cliffhanger to part three is him sort of standing there helpless as, don't do it, Tegan, it'll be the end of us all. <laughs> he gets the sonic screwdriver destroyed. It's just sort of like, come on, Doctor, you know, throw a punch or something. Not not literally, but narratively, narratively, throw a punch. Would we agree it's it's a very deliberate style to, to take him away from Tom Baker, who'd walk into a room and dominate it and know everything that was happening and, you know, it was always in control. But it goes too far, maybe, in the other direction. Yeah, I think so. And the reason I raise it is not so much to bag him outright, but to point out how this pendulum does swing back as his era sort of goes on. And I think this is probably the furthest point of the pendulum. In Vegetation, he's really quite helpless the whole time. Mm. No, that's fair. I've I've always particularly liked this. I mean, it gets bagged for the disco android and all that sort of thing. But oh, the disco android, <laughs> great! I know, I know. I think it's a great design. I love that there's some location shooting. I, I even don't mind that it ties into the Great Fire of London. You know, you can sort of see it coming a mile off, but there it is. I've always quite enjoyed this, and the Richard Mace character so enjoyable. I mean, there's there's one people say, oh, he could have been a companion. No, no, I won't go that far with him. But what's it say that this is now two stories in a row where we've gone, why couldn't we have them as companions? Yeah. Whilst, you know, Nissa's unconscious in the TARDIS. Nissa's busy making Meccano sets in the TARDIS. Tegan's locked up or unconscious in the TARDIS. Tegan's unconscious in the jungle. Adric's just sort of there. Oh, but Richard Mace is really good. Todd's really good. <laughs> well, I was going to say, the, the Tegan character doesn't want to be there. You know, all these yeah. episodes, she just wants to go home. And, and that's not very inviting. <laughs> no, it's not. And, and, and look, this point's been made before by many people. Yeah. A, as fans, as particularly as kids, you watch... And the thing you want most in the universe is to travel in time and space with the Doctor. Tegan gets the chance to do it, and she doesn't want to be there. And you just spend the whole time going, well, all right, then, you bugger off, and I'll take your place. If you don't appreciate it, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, we'll get another Australian in there. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to Black Orchid, this is one I've always loved. Uh, people say, oh, it's a Terence Dudley story, it's terrible, you know what's happening from the first scene, etc., etc. But gosh, I loved it. The Doctor got to play cricket. <laughs> As an Australian, that's perfect. However, it's the one that Davo hates. I know, I know. I love the commentary. I absolutely love this commentary track. The one that starts with... Now, I know that some fans get very upset when we make fun of a story, so if you're one of those, don't listen, because this is a Terry D Terrence Dudley story, and we don't like it, and we're going to point out all its faults. <laughs> yes, if you've never listened to a, uh, a Davison uh, commentary track, this is the one to start with, I think, because it's oh, great. It is. It is very, very entertaining. 
even if you disagree, because I disagree. I like Black Orchid as a story. I love the setting. We've got the Doctor in the 1920s. This is the era he should be in. And gosh, when he gets out of his costume and he's wearing different clothes, it's like, yeah, he could look fantastic in this era, even when he's wearing fancy dress. Yeah, I think it's a very good story for him, with the exception of the middle third, where he's just, again, just wandering around helplessly in the mansion. In his bathrobe. In his bathrobe, yes. <laughs> but, oh, maybe this is my guilty pleasure episode of the uh, of this series. I, I do think Davison is the best thing in this. I think when Davison he starts to engage with the plot, he, he does it really well. The, the stuff with the cricket is fun. I do enjoy that. The middle third is, is really, really bad, though. And again, you've got a lot of Davison not being involved with the story, whilst three companions go around and sort of go around and go, oh, what's this? It's one of these. Oh, why are people doing this? I don't know. Can I have a drink? What that, what's that drink? <laughs> yeah, true. Just on the cricket, though, how about that scene where the guy goes, you know, what, what do you bowl, old boy? And he goes, fast. That's right, yes. <laughs> In this really dramatic way, and you think, oh, my God. But he's actually just bowling medium paces. Uh, he is, but he does take that wicket. He does, which was a bit of a fluke, but it's on film. In massive contrast to Black Orchid, we then dive into Earthshock. In fact, in massive contrast to probably the entire season, we then dive into Earthshock. Yeah, it's the one that stands out this season, both for the storyline, the returning adversary, um, and also just the style of it compared to the others. Is it the best of the first half of the run? Uh, I'm briefly looking at the list, and I would say yes. Uh, for me, it's an unquestioning yes. Yeah, look, I had to check because it does have Kinder in there, which I love. And, uh, you know, Snake Dance, I also have a soft spot for because it follows up from Kinder. But then uh, some Black Guardian trilogy. Mm, yeah, no, no, it's the best. Yeah, I, I think it is. It occasionally comes in for a bit of a bashing from people who are too smart to really appreciate it. If I can, <laughs> if I can put it like that. You know, people enjoy looking down on stuff that other people like. Yeah, I know what you mean. It is just a fun, exciting adventure. And again... It's what I imagine Doctor Who goes into the future to fight aliens is like. It, 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 the, the space freighter looks good. The soldiers' costumes look good. The Cybermen look great. Uh, the companions kind of all get little bits of stuff to do. Again, there's still too many of them. But Davison's brilliant in this one. Yeah. This is the is. story where Davison takes charge several times. He is. I mean, it, it's out of Daleks and Cybermen. This is the first of the big adversaries he gets to go up against. That probably thrilled him, being a, a former fan. He would know the Cybermen. You mentioned how they look. I think these Cybermen still look great today. It's an awesome design. I almost wish they'd go back to something like this. Yeah, I agree. I think it's wonderful. But you look at what the Fifth Doctor does in here. He mm. walks into the cave and he takes control. The bomb's about to go off. He takes control... He, de he, he defuses the bomb. He then says, right, we're going to go and find out where this is going. He goes to the freighter, yep, gets captured, but as soon as he's in front of Beryl Reed, he takes control. He stands up to the cyber leader. They then go back to the TARDIS. He takes control. He attacks the cyber leader. He beats the cyber leader. The Doctor is more proactive in this than he is in many, many other Fifth Doctor stories. And this is, I think, the start of that really good Davison. No, that's very fair and uh, quite right. You know, he's, he's more proactive here than several of these earlier stories put together, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's all the better for it. And I think the story is far, far better for it. Look, I, I love Kinder, but you take the Doctor out of Kinder, other than the last five minutes with the mirrors, 
that story still happens and it really doesn't change much. He gets some nice lines, but he's not influencing events. In Earthshock, he is shaping events. That's true, but Kinder is still an interesting story. Oh, oh it is. I, I, I love it, but it's not Davison's strongest as a character. No, no, that, that's the difference, for sure. And, and it's got Reg Hollis from the bill. <laughs> it does. <laughs> so this is a type of story, though, that Eric Saywood keeps trying to go back to the same well to get a pitcher of water from. Was that a mistake? I, I'm going to say no. Let me make a couple of points here. To what extent is it Eric Sayward going back to the well? I think it's more J&T. And again, if you read Richard Marsden's excellent book on the J&T years, they talk about how J&T would you know, regularly go out to the pub with some of the super fans in the UK. And when Earthshot came out, particularly that, that famous cliffhanger of the Cybermen, they were all, you know, just, you know, genuflecting around him. My God, you've made the most wonderful Doctor Who story ever. This is amazing. And forever J&T's now, I, want to, I need to do that again. Give him that again. Make me another Earthshock. And Eric Say was like, well, I've got other tricks in my sleeve. No, no, make another Earthshock. Yeah. The other thing is people say, oh, this is Eric Saywood doing this. This is Doctor Who doing what Doctor Who always does, which is be contemporary. You watch the Davison era and it could only be made in the 80s. Just as the Williams era could only be made in the late 70s. Just as the Hinchcliffe era is the early 70s. Just as the Hartnell era is the early 60s. I've never had a problem with, or really understood the complaint, about Doctor Who being more 80s in the 80s. <laughs> it's the time to be 80s. It's the time to be 80s. It's the only time to be 80s. Don't ever be 80s any time else. Yeah. And, and I've, I really like it. I think that it is more exciting. Doctor Who should be exciting. Doctor Who is an adventure. It is. But then we go to something like Time Flight. So we're done with Earthshock? We're just going to say Earthshock's great, we're happy, Doctor's excited? I think we've got so many to motor through, we, we have to, okay. unfortunately. Maybe I'm just putting off Time Flight. Look, look, Time Flight, <laughs> time flight is not awful. Time Flight is just cheap. Yeah, there's a good idea behind Time Flight. You know, the concept of one Concord going missing and then taking the next one back and, you know, what they find back in time. Wonderful. That's, that's quite an interesting idea, but yeah, it just doesn't look good. This is an example for me of where the Target novel really did excite me and then the TV version didn't fail to live up to it. Quite often because of the repeats we had in Australia, I saw the TV version long before I read the book. Mm. Time Flight was one that where that did happen in reverse and it was to the detriment. Because, yeah, I remember being really excited by the Time Flight novel. It, it, it all... Look, there are, there are flaws, you know. Why is the master dressed up as that whatever he's meant to be, doing the shirah shirah nonsense. and uh, Yeah, okay, that's stupid. But, you know, if we're going to write off stories where the, ma the only master does something stupid, well, there goes half the 80s. Yeah, true. I found the plot quite, before I read the Target novel later in the 80s, I found the plot quite complex as a younger viewer. Yeah, that's fair. Probably the most complex plot of the, the, the season, actually. I think that's very fair, and it's... The mark of what's to come from Peter Grimwade as a writer. Because mm. he's about to give us Mordred Undead. He'll later give us Planet, Planet of Fire. And they are also, Mordred Undead particularly, incredibly complex. So I think, yeah, you, you can see the germ of that. I, I don't hate Time Flight. I, I do think it's flawed. I do think it's cheap. I'm trying to remember what Davison does in it. Uh, takes Concord back um, with the TARDIS. Finds what's going on. Tricks the Master, uh, which is kind of clever. Uh, sending him back to, to the uh, the planet where he'll be judged for his uh, actions. That's that's all kind of good, but 
specifically, I can't think of like scenes or lines or anything, you know, if that's what you mean. No. And the bit where he's locked in the inner sanctum thing with the Xerophon, I think that was a missed opportunity. I think that Davison could have been given some really meaty stuff in there. Like mm. there could have been a real, you know, a real moral, as you say, a, a memorable speech, a moral um, debate or something, you know. Your species, well, I'm really sorry that they've been wiped out, but hey, that happens, and why should you get to live again at the expense of these? And oh, I feel sorry for you. There could have been something in there. <laughs> yeah. And and it just it just doesn't quite work. And it is another example of I think where the production just is bland. Like it just looks washed out. Mm, agreed. And and Davison against a washed out background really suffers. Yeah. Yeah, not only because of the costume, but also his facial features. This is something the illustrators would often say. He's hard to draw because he doesn't really have eyebrows. <laughs> and his face is... That pleasant open face can actually <laughs> just be blanded out sometimes. It's not... You know, it hasn't got wild staring big eyes or, or a massive curly hair or a, a beetle haircut or whatever. It's... it's Yeah, it's, it can be blanded out. So what we seem to have said a bit across this first season is Davison's good. Yes. Could be stronger. Absolutely. And I'll reiterate, it is my favourite series of Davo. The imagination on display is great. You know, even if there are bits in the stories that make you wince or think, oh, that could have been better. You know, Castrovalva, particularly Kinder, are great. Visitation of Black Orchid are like pseudo-historicals. Earthshock's a stone-cold classic. It's only time flight that really lets me down. So this is a really strong season. And people are often surprised when I say that. But I think when people out there dig down and think about it, they'll think, oh, yeah, these stories are all actually pretty interesting or pretty okay. There's nothing there I couldn't put on and enjoy. Yeah, exactly. Leading then into season 20. Mm. Now, you've just said season 19 is your favourite. Yes. Spoiler alert, season 21 is my favourite. So season 20 is clearly neither of our favourites. It's it's my least favourite. <laughs> mm, I don't know. I haven't got... I don't know. I haven't really... I don't know which is my least favourite. I just like season 21. Season 20, I think, is full of really good ideas. And I give a lot of credit to Eric Sayward for this. You go through Mordred Undead, wonderfully interesting idea. Terminus, wonderfully interesting big idea, written by a new writer that, that Sayward brought in. Enlightenment, amazingly good idea, etc., etc., etc. So... As we go through, we, why, why then do we not love this season? It's hard to say. I mean, I, I do say up front it's the weakest season, even though it has a sequel to Kinder, which I love. And the Black Guardian trilogy is interesting, as you were just alluding to. And if we lump the five Doctors in, there's some fun to be had there. I don't know. Terminus is a bit of a bore, though, and King's Demons could have been better. Arc of Infinity is all location shooting over substance and, you know, Gallifrey looking like Ikea. It's almost six of one, half a dozen of the other. It's just not as strong as the previous season for mine. You know, there's maybe a few more duds which make you think, mmm, this isn't so good. But again, there's nothing here I wouldn't put on and watch. And, and I struggle to call any of them really a dud. I don't mind Terminus. Okay. I, I, I like the big ideas in Terminus. I like the bleakness of Terminus. I like the fact that the Doctor actually gets to interact with some people. You know, it does move around. Look, again, it's bland. Like, the set design is just bland. Mm. You know, space pirates arrive and they're wearing white. They, they, <laughs> they, they walk around costumes that are sort of painted in eggshell. 
yeah. it, it looks washed out, and I don't think that helps it. To the point that when they have that black and yellow line across the the uh, the, the floor to mark exactly how far radiation travels, come on. Yeah. <laughs> but it just stands <laughs> out. As, just stands out as yellow against <laughs> everything else. <laughs> well look should we go through them quickly Ark of Infinity I mentioned a lot of location shooting over substance I'll stand by that Omega's nowhere near as interesting as he was in Three Doctors the plot's just a bit weird but I do like the location shooting is that shallow of me? no it's not I can't remember where I was during the course of the month but I did describe this story as the one that starts with a gay couple looking for somewhere to keep for the night and ends with Thalia <laughs> fetching the... Um, what does she go and fetch? A pulse loop, that's right. She goes to fetch yes. a pulse loop. Yeah. That, that, that's a good summary, Dave. <laughs> and uh, I I don't know why I like Ark of Infinity, but I do. Maybe it's because Sarah Sutton actually gets to give a really good performance. Maybe it's because Janet Fielding actually is not annoying in this one. The problem again, though, is that Peter Davison gets to be dead for half of it. Mm. Or, mm. Or, or sort of, oh, they're going to execute me. <laughs> okay, then, that's a bit of a bugger. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, or smiling creepily at that child. Yeah, yeah, it's, again, and I'm going to be saying a lot more nice things about Davison as we go on. We're still in his weak half. Yes. And, and this, to me, is another example of that. Can you imagine Pertwee? Rocking up on Gallifrey, being told, sorry, um, we've got a few problems. The easiest way out of this is just to execute you. Hope you're cool with that. Can you imagine Pertwee going, yeah, all right, that's a fair. <laughs> can you imagine Tom doing that? I know what you're saying. Yeah, I can just imagine Pertwee. I don't think so. You know, he'd be starting a fight and, you know, hey? kicking <laughs> ass. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. You know, look at what Tom was like in The Deadly Assassin, where he, he suddenly becomes very acerbic and very... Very almost nasty, and you know he's he's challenging. Davison, uh, uh, yeah, this is again just Davison being helpless, and it's bad. The Doctor should not be this helpless. Davison pulls it off. Like his his acting in this is brilliant. The way that he convinces you, oh well, the Doctor, wow, he's he's sacrificing himself for the good of the Time Lords, and it's you know the way he deals with Anissa and says, you know, sorry, this is how it's got to be. Wonderful performances, mm. but terrible characterization. But again, this comes back to me saying earlier, he's he's more of a normal guy. He's he's not larger than life. He's not uh, he's not a big Tom Baker like figure, or even Pertwee. He he deals with things in a different way, which which I enjoy the contrast. I can see why it can be perceived as weak. I can see why it's not as entertaining for sure. Mm. But it's different, and as you say, the way he plays it really sort of helps sell it. Yeah, and again, the way he plays Omega, you you feel like here's an alien that's been trapped for millennia. Suddenly, is able to walk around, just going, "Wow, yeah, what? you know, this is this is this is the world," and then becomes desperate as they work out their plan isn't working. Unfortunately, though, it has got tulips from Amsterdam all the way through, all <laughs> the way through, and there isn't even a giant cod to relieve you of it. No, no. Shall we move on? Yeah, let's. Snake Dance. Sequel to Kinder. The Mara's back. Doc Martin's in it. I think this is a pretty enjoyable episode. Not as good as Kinder, though. This is my weakest story of the Davison era. <gasps> no, Dave. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I think it's it's bland. What's his name? Um, uh, Martin Clo- Martin Clunes? Okay, Martin Clunes is really good, but yeah. he's dressed in a ridiculous costume. 
the sets are bland. That that set where they wander off on film to the the rock, you know, in the middle of the desert, you know, which is just a small rock in the middle of a couple of bits of sand. Mm-hmm. And they talk to Dojin. That's just dull. It's boring. It's washed out. The the, the Mara's kind of doesn't do anything. Like the Mara possesses Tegan and she goes and hangs out in a cave for three episodes. We're supposed to be amused by this very boring um, archaeology professor. Well, I'm not excited by archaeology professors. I'm just bored by Snake Dance. I'm sorry, Rob. And, and again, the Doctor is kind of just pathetic in this. He doesn't take control. And that last season where he's trying to convince everybody, you know, don't do this, don't look, find the inner, inner silence or whatever it is, Everyone's ignoring him, and that's a really bad look for the character. Tell me I'm wrong. Look, you're not wrong from the point of view that it's at least weaker than Kinder. I, I, I find it hard to think of it as being the weakest in the in the era overall. I quite like the way they imagine the Mara's return, I think, is done in an interesting way because it's not a retread of Kinder. You know, they're, they're on a different planet. They're doing different things. I thought that was quite imaginative. Um, for it not to be just just a straight retread of it, I, I see again what you're saying about the Doctor. It's it's hard for me to bag Dave, though, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. He he again makes scenes work that otherwise wouldn't. Mm. The way he engages with uh, the the architecture professor or the curator, or whatever it is, really good, really good scene. Yeah. This is what I was talking about when I talked about rediscovering Davison. Even in the story I don't like, I utterly respect his performance in this. He always gives 100%. Oh, absolutely. It's it's like Matt Smith in some ways. You know, the Matt Smith era, I can point at a lot of the stories and say, I really don't like that. I can point at a lot of things Amy, Amy does and say, horrible. But Matt is always on. I think the one exception is maybe Nightmare and Silver, where I think he really cracked it on set. And it sort of shows in the performance. But other than that, Matt Smith is always like this as well, I think. All right. Well, let's move into then a run of stories I really do like. Because I I like pretty much the rest of the season. Mm -hmm. We almost have to take the Black Guardian trilogy as a set, I think. Because they are three brilliant ideas. Yes. Very cleverly done. I think that Mordred Undead, contrasted to a lot of the era, looks really, really lush. And that's, that's a real credit to it. Terminus, as I've said, does look bland and washed out. It's got that awful Davis and blandness about it, but it's a fascinating story. Enlightenment, a fascinating story. Again, it looks really, really good. This is, to me, where the Davison era really starts to turn. Enlightenment, the Doctor actually does start to lead again and take charge. Mordred Undead, the Doctor's engaging with the Brigadier, and I think Nick Courtney helps him to lift and take charge. It does, again, though, have the, uh, Doctor, for you to get out of this, you're going to have to sacrifice your eight regenerations. Oh, okay then. <laughs> yeah, fair. But you can see the change in the, the Doctor's character as I think Davison does become more confident. And I love the Black Guardian trilogy. I really, really like them. I think this is where the Doctor Davison era kicks off. Robbie, are you with me on this? I like it. We mentioned earlier Mordred Undead has a very complicated sort of plot, which again, as a kid, I didn't fully grasp i mean i was watching it and sort of understanding it but not fully getting it and you know i think that's kind of a problem when it's a show particularly in the 80s for kids the other two are much more understandable stories i like the introduction of turlo i thought he was a really interesting character from the start and he only got more interesting as far as i'm concerned he's quite a good companion one i've always liked actually 
Terminus, yeah, that's that's the low point for me. Maybe the low point of the whole Davison era. Oh, apart from King's Demons, maybe. And Enlightenment, I've always enjoyed. So yeah, I, I broadly like this this trilogy as well. Yeah, and particularly Enlightenment, this is Davison really starting to be a lot stronger as a character. Is it the best of the season? Th- are I we including Are we including Five Doctors? No. If we don't include Five Doctors, then yes, absolutely it is. Yeah, I, I think it's the pivot point of the entire era. That's fair. It's a second outing for a new companion. We've sort of got a fresher field of the TARDIS team being cut down to two. Uh, the effects are good. Yeah, yeah, that's very fair. Would this season, though, Dave, have been a bit different? if the industrial action hadn't happened and stopped the return from being made, or as some people know it, Warhead, and for people out there who don't know what the hell I'm talking about, this was going to be the Dalek story that eventually ended up in the next season, but there was going to be a Dalek story in here. I think all that would have done is heightened the praise we're already giving in the latter half of the season. True. If it was going to be anything like Resurrection, because I know it went through a few iterations, um, that's still a pretty strong story, so yeah, I think you're right. Is the introduction of Turlo, and I agree he's a great companion, and Mark Strickson I've met a couple of times, a really good bloke, does that really lift the entire TARDIS crew as well? I think Davison acts better alongside Strickson. I think Janet Fielding is much better alongside Strickson, and I don't know whether it's because they've deliberately reset Tegan's character now that she's no longer an air hostess and she's come back, but I think she works better as well. Like Suddenly the TARDIS team is working, all of them. I don't hate Tegan now. Yeah, that that's very fair. Although I've been saying I like season 19 the best and how the TARDIS crew there with three people reminds me in some ways of the Hartnell era, but not in others. I think this is, as you say, the TARDIS team that, that works best for Davo. I, I like it too. Tegan's more... She's just toned down a little, I think. Well, she wants to be there. Yes, exactly. We then get to the King's Demons. Mm, we do. <laughs> I'm going to say that this is mostly harmless. That's fair. It's so short. It comes and goes and, you know, it is what it is. We're talking about the worst of the era. King's Demons is probably it for me. Okay, why? I just think it's a weak story. I mean, you can poke holes in most, if not all, stories in one way or another. But just here, the idea of why the Master's there, why he's doing what he's doing... It just seems weak. It just seems like something tossed off in a in a weekend. You know, <laughs> Terence Dudley's pulled out the typewriter, just bashed it out. Mm. Uh, something to do with Magna Carta. Uh, King John's away. Master is going to have this robot. And isn't that a mistake? Chameleon. My God. It just all the all the elements of it just don't come together as as a whole. I know when you say mostly harmless. Do you mean in terms of the length? Do you mean you know it just? It, it doesn't I, outstay its welcome. I mean, I don't dislike it. I can watch this for 45 minutes and say, you know what, this is a perfectly okay story. Yep, it's flawed. But Davison actually gets to engage. Davison actually gets to interact with Ainley and come off better for it. And this is a, an example of the Doctor not being helpless. Every time the Doctor's put into a difficult situation, he gets out of it. He is able to talk his way out of it with King John and and, and, and he's, insert his domination or insert his influence or authority on the court. He is able to, when you know it, the Master arrives, pull a sword and beat him in a sword fight. Mm. He's able to outwit the Master. So you go from this Doctor sort of who's just been buffeted around by events and you know, meekly just accepting his fate to actually being more proactive. And again, we're seeing this 
continuing arc of Davison's Doctor, the Fifth Doctor, getting more authoritative and being less wimpish. And I'd like that of him in King's Demons. Very fair. Now, the season, of course, would have included the return or Warhead. Yes. But it doesn't. So we move on. I'm going to lump the Five Doctors special into season 20. Sure. Because it is, after all, the 20th anniversary episode. And it's a Davison episode. He's he's the Doctor in the credits and, and so on. So Five Doctors, Dave, your thoughts? I love it. Yeah. I just love it. It's just, <laughs> it's just, it's a lovely glass of red by the fire on a stormy night with your best friend slippers it's just so lovely isn't it yeah and i don't know whether that's because i just saw it at the right age or whether because i read the book so many times or whether because i've watched the episode so many times or whether that it's just all these neatly crafted little scenes that just flow together and we get such variety with having you know well three doctors in it at least it's hard to sort of have a bad word against it, even though it's not a great story, even though you can poke holes in it, even though Sarah Jane falls down a slight embankment and <laughs> it's made out to be this huge cliff. You put all that aside, it's just nice. Now, interesting point. This is obviously the only time that Terence Dix writes for Peter Davison. You're right, yeah. Terence has always said you don't write for different doctors, you just write the doctor and let the actor put his performance over the top. Which I've always found kind of BS from the point of view that there are certain catchphrases that only certain doctors would sure. use and so on, so you've got to write those in, surely. Oh, sure, sure. I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure Terence is simplifying here. But in this story, he does kind of just write the doctor, and Davison does do that, and he's again, goes up another notch. When it's Davison with the first doctor... Even though, you know, okay, it's Herndon, not Hartnell, but even so, they're equals. Mm. When the Doctor confronts the High Council, he doesn't take any BS from the High Council. He's in there just, you know, calling the shots and calling them out. Yeah. Again, I can't imagine Davison in season 19 doing what he does here. And maybe one of the reasons why I did have a something of a soft spot for him was because this was the one Davison story we had on tape. And he is better here than he is elsewhere. And maybe I was a bit disappointed when I saw some of his other stuff. Do we know if some of those scenes where he is so assertive might have meant to have been Tom Baker scenes or something like that? Well, originally originally it was meant to be Tom that went to Gallifrey, so yeah, maybe. Yeah. And again, I take on board what you're saying that Terence does say, oh, you just write the Doctor. But if they were originally Tom Baker scenes... And when we jump forward to Caves of Androsani, I think Robert Holmes was thinking of the Tom Baker Doctor when he was writing that, and it turns out to be Davo's Greatest Hour. I wonder if he's just written a bit differently, whether that also helps Davo shine. Yeah, yeah, maybe, because he, do, he does shine here. It's a, Look, it's a lovely story, and he's so good in it. And he gets to lead. Yes. Oh, yes. Well, he is the Doctor. He, he is, is the, the incumbent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Season 21. Season 21 is in my top three or four seasons of the classic series. That's a big call. That's a huge call. Yeah. Um, okay. Let me let me say I don't count Twin Dilemma as being part of season 21 sort of in my mind. Like In my mind, it's part of season 22. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, as a kid, I always thought it was because that was the most logical to me. Yeah, exactly. That the new season would start with a new Doctor. So I think that this is just hit after hit after hit with only one exception. Warriors of the Deep. No. Oh, no. (laughs) 
You're going to say The Awakening, aren't you? I am going to say The Awakening. Yeah, I thought so. Whereas I quite like The Awakening. A lot of people do. It's a real it's a real Vegemite story, that one. It's out on location. Again, I'm a broken record. I'm a sucker for locations, and it's a small English village. What's not to like? True. But Warriors of the Deep. Mm-hmm. It's an exciting adventure in the future. It's a military futuristic base that again is all gleaming metal and flashing lights and interesting stuff it's got monsters and it's got the doctor struggling against the inevitable and i think that's where the drama comes from this people say oh look you know the hexachromite gas is there in part one and it's so obvious what's going to happen yeah it is but they're missing the point Warriors of the Deep is the story of the Doctor desperately trying to find the alternative to the obvious and failing. And that makes for good drama. Is it fair to say, just breaking off from Warriors of the Deep for a moment, that the Davis and Doctor does fail a lot compared to past Doctors? And that's a reason why some might not like him. I think that is entirely fair. Mm. Whereas to me, you know, and we've said how much I love him, I like characters that fail. I like Shakespeare's tragic heroes. I like Hamlet. And although I'm not, you know, sort of maybe lumping him in with Hamlet, I sort of do like a sad story. (laughs) You know, and I kind of find it more realistic when someone doesn't win all the time or know all the answers. Again, it comes back to Davo being a bit more normal for me and me, you know, responding to that. He doesn't lose in Warriors of the Deep. He still saves humanity. True. He just doesn't do it the way he would have preferred to do it. Mm. And that, to me, is a good bit of drama. Look, I'm not saying that Warriors of the Deep is a brilliant story, but I've always enjoyed it. No, that, that, that's fair. There, there are laugh-out-loud moments in it. We all know what they are with the karate kicking and, <laughs> you know, the murker and so on. We, You know, I get all of that. But, yeah, there, there are some nice bits in it, too. I, I have said in the past, I love the, imag- the reimagined, I should say, um, Sea Devils. Yeah, I really like them. I, I don't like the reimagined Silurians. Um, but their base is really good. Their ship is really good. And, and again, people say, oh, the light should have been turned down. And Well, well no. First of all, this is, the, this is the front line of half the world's defences. It's going to be the best possible tech there is. <laughs> but you have to have the contrast between humanity, gleaming white, all the rest of it, and the Silurians and the Sea Devils, dark, gloomy, organic. Yeah, true. The, the contrast is important. Uh, but you also know my point of view that, you know, when they go to red alert, perhaps maybe the lighting could change a little and, and just hide a few of the flaws. Look, look, fair enough. But I, I, I defend Warriors of the Deep. Fair enough. The Awakening, we've already briefly discussed. Again, for me, two parts, short and sweet. Location filming, English country town. Interesting premise. Hmm, what's not to like, Dave? I just find it a very silly sort of story. I don't think any of the actors really know what's going on and give quite flat performances or, or, or performances that don't really gel with each other. Mm-hmm. I think that um, Dennis Lill. Yes. I, I think that Dennis Lill is in a completely different story to everybody else on that set. <laughs> yeah, fair. But I will give it points for incredibly memorable moments. As I said, one of my very first memories of Doctor Who is both the face of the malice coming through the wall Mm. and the malice on the side of the TARDIS. Oh, hell yes. That was really scary, actually. Yeah, it was really scary. So I give it points for that. I just just find it a really stupid story. Sorry. All right. Well, speaking of stupid stories, 
I've never been into Frontios. Oh, Rob! <laughs> you see, it's this true. is this is where we just get hit after hit, in my view. I think Frontios is so clever. It is so witty, and it's one of Davison's best performances. The way that he's just so, so in control, but a little bit cynical and a little bit, a uh, little bit uh, not nasty, but you know he's able to give a, give as good as he gets in this. It's a clever idea. It looks good. The music's great. What's not to love about Frontios? This is <laughs> this is the Davison era really kicking goals. Well, look, for me, Frontios takes us back to season 19, which is a season I love. Christopher H. Bidmead's back. I think that's part of it, because Bidmead did have such an influence in the early parts, at least, of season 19. I get all of that. I can even see how it's an interesting story. But, again, just like there are some stories where, as a kid, I love them, and I just can't be dissuaded from that as an adult, here is one that, as a kid, I just didn't get into and found a bit strange, and I've never been able to shake that as an adult. Given we're focusing on Davison and the Fifth Doctor, Mm. I'm going to particularly highlight, though, how good he looks in those half-moon glasses. Yes. How good he is when he's just sort of quietly getting involved and just quietly moving the directions. But that that scene towards the end in in the um, shattered control room with the Gravis, where he's, you know, trying to convince the Gravis to do stuff, he's making all those jobs. Oh, don't worry about Tegan, she's just an android. I got her cheap because of the walk. And then there's the accent. You know, <laughs> I know, that, I that, know. That's, that's some of Davison's best work. I know, I know, Dave. And it it doesn't pain me, but I do I do feel it. I do feel that I should like Frontios more than I do. I just don't. Ah, oh, it's, it's a bugbear of mine in some ways, because I know I probably should. All right, do you like Resurrection better or worse? I like Resurrection better. I like Resurrection a lot. I'm, this is almost a guilty pleasure for me, because... The story is bonkers. Yes, agreed. But uh, maybe it's partly again just because I remember what it was like to watch it as a kid. Yes. But I, I, I enjoy this. It's, it looks good again. It's, it's not bland. It's exciting. It's adventure. Davison, look, he's a little bit helpless at some points, but then he's also really proactive. You know, he blows up Daleks. Mm. Yeah. And there's some great location shooting, including him pushing that Dalek out of the warehouse from the yeah, second yeah. second story. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Resurrection, I've, I've resonated with a, a, a lot more as a kid and as an adult, you know, Frontios, no. Sure. <laughs> but 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 do you, do you concede that by this point, his performance in season 21 is a much more confident performance right across it? More confident than the previous season, yes. Different to the first season, though. Again, I'll use Matt Smith as the example. I think Matt Smith's best series is his first series. Even though he uh, grows and adapts as the Doctor, and by the third series, you you might think, oh, he's really got this down. He really knows what he's doing. But I still prefer his first series. In fact, I almost prefer the first series of many Doctors, almost because they haven't nailed things down, and it's a little more... What's the word? Sort of natural, maybe. Okay. They're not, they haven't sort of nailed down a persona and are just playing a persona. They're sort of doing all sorts of different things. Yeah, interesting. I, I, I think that Davison goes from strength to strength in this. And, and there is a build up. Look, you, you, you said earlier that Androzani is his finest hour. That doesn't come out of nowhere. That's not a spike in my view. There is a very steady build from Warriors of the Deep to Caves of Androzani across the season. 
That's fair, but just, just to rewind, think of Tom Baker in his first season versus later seasons. Think of Pertwee in his first season versus later seasons. You know, they're, they're different kinds of doctors earlier on. It, it, it is true. It's also worth noting that Peter Davison himself said that he was a bit disappointed with the scripts in season 20, and that was when he said, oh, I won't do a fourth year. But he also said, had he had scripts of the quality of season 21... At that point, he would have done another series. Like, the end of season 21, he's going, gee, I want to do more of this. We've got this working now, but he'd already said no to, to a fourth year. And that's fair, because it's 20 that I'm not into either. And 21, I think, is almost as good as 19 in my mind, which is which is pretty darn good. So, you know, it's not like I'm putting season 21 down at all. I think this is a really good season. And we move on now to Planet of Fire, which, again, location filming, Dave... <laughs> But it's also a good story. Planet of Fire is my second favourite story of the 80s. Yeah, that would be after survival. After survival, yeah. I think that this is the full package again. As you say, the location filming is just incredible, but the story is so sophisticated and deep and lovely. Ainley is really good as the master hits, probably with survival, one of his two really good performances. Davison is great. Perry, what an introduction! She's fantastic. Uh, Turlo, what a farewell. Yeah, it's it's really, really good stuff and very underrated, I think. I, I think so. And and again, focusing in on Davison here, he's got an edge to him again. He he confronts Turlo. He shirt fronts Turlo, you know. If you're hiding something that could help me defeat the Master, our friendship is at an end. Yeah, he's not messing around. He, he's not, and he's better for it. He's also slightly out of uniform. Yeah, that helps, doesn't it? Oh, hugely. That that tapestry kind of waistcoat, wonderful. Yeah, I wish we'd had more of him in that. You know, when you take some of these 80s Doctors a bit out of their costume, uh, I think of Colin Baker in maybe two Doctors where he's out of the coat, for example. Or even Vengeance in Varos when he's, you know, burning up and he's out of the coat. That, mm, that's good mm. too. Or Sylvester McCoy where they actually put more layers on him when he's got that duffel coat on and it's kind of hiding the question mark jumper. When Doctors sort of go a bit out of uniform in the 80s, of course Doctors these days do it all the time. They're always changing costume. Well, well Doctors shouldn't wear uniforms. They should just wear clothes. Precisely. Yeah, and here we get the sense that it's a it, it's more clothing like there's still the costumish look to the pants and the boots, but that tapestry waistcoat that comes out of nowhere. Mm. And it's it's really really good. You get Davison instantly forming a rapport with Nicola Bryant, I think. Hugely. Yeah. What could have been if there'd been another season with with those two in it? Absolutely. That that would have been really good. And his his farewell scene with Turlo, I think is a really nice understated scene where you know it's it's two blokes saying goodbye and wanting to you know you can feel them wanting to hug and knowing mm. that they're not supposed to yeah and there's that little handshake and then Turlo walks off in those tight tight shorts he does <laughs> <laughs> but yeah look uh Davison and Bryant I think you know if you'd had that Colin Baker season after they'd done another season together it would have been more tragic for him to be throttling Perry if she'd built up this huge rapport with the Davison Doctor over a season and a half, say. Yeah. And then Colin Baker throttled her. Oh, God, that would have been terrible. You know, it's still terrible, but it would have been more tragic for this guy who she liked but has only been with for a couple of stories. Mm. I mean, Big Big Finish tries to pretend, you know, 50 stories happened, but clearly from the dialogue at the start of Andrazani, they have just come from Planet of Fire. 
Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's really good. I, I love Planet of Fire. And again, you've just got this build-up. Frontios, really good. Resurrection, really exciting. Planet of Fire, excellent. And then we hit the Caves of Bloody Androzani. Mm. And you say this isn't a spike for you. It's still a slight spike for me. I think this is better than any of the stories we've just talked about. I, yes, it is probably better. Um, Planet of Fire is my personal favourite. Right. But if I was, you know, assessing under careful neutral, you know, emotionless criteria, yes, I would have to give Androzani the better score. What can we say that hasn't already been said? You know, there are people out there who say, oh, I don't like this because other people like it. (laughs) Those people do exist. They do. But it's no mistake that this is consistently voted such a top story. Yeah, it is consistently in the top 10, if not the top five of fan favourites. It, again looks good. That blandness of the first half of the Davison series is gone. The blandness of his character is gone. He's suddenly, again, a proactive, in-control doctor. We, the, the, the second half of the Davison era is building to this, and he is fantastic. I don't know what else we can say. It's just really bloody good. I think people who have listened this far into the podcast will have seen it. I, I doubt there's anyone out there listening who hasn't seen it. You know what it's like. It's just great. Oh, if you'd only gone on another season. What do you think of the regeneration? Just that that idea that, you know, famously Tom died saving the universe. Davison dies saving Perry. I like it. And obviously they brought it back with um, Tennant. You know, they wanted Tennant to go out in a small sort of way, just saving one person as well. I think it's 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 got a lot to say for it. I get a bit bored by the universe is at stake kind of moments. I will pull it up. <laughs> I don't know why he doesn't give the bat's milk to Perry before he starts carrying her back to the TARDIS. Why didn't he give it to her, have a dose himself? They would have both felt great and could have ran back to the TARDIS. Uh, Instead, you know, he makes that error of carrying her and then spilling it and so on. But I guess that's got to be in the plot, doesn't it? But It does. Can, Can we mention the infamous Australian cut of this story? Oh, hell yes, please. I... That is something that confused me for years because it's the only way I saw it, obviously, originally. Yeah, so when season 21 was first broadcast in Australia, we got to the end of Planet of Fire and then it went into a repeat of season 18. Mm. This was because the censors were still working out what the hell to do with Caves of Androzani Part 4. <laughs> in the end, they just decided, well, okay, we'll show it, but we'll cut everything we have a problem with. So that means, now, viewers, just imagine this. We're in Jack's headquarters. We've got about 10 minutes to go. Yep. The, the first person build, bursts into that room to start that confrontation where, you know, all the characters eventually end up in that room killing each other. So the first person bursts into that, that room. Cut to the room's on fire and Jack's dying in the arms of the android. Yep, that's how I remember it. <laughs> Everything in between is missing. And that's how we saw it in Australia for years. I And I had recorded this off air and so I would watch it over and over and I still couldn't make sense of what had happened I don't think I even understood that it had been censored you know initially I just thought it was a really weirdly cut scene (laughs) yeah that's right we had no idea it wasn't until I got involved in fandom and started to learn these things that we had any idea because yeah it was a long time before it was shown when it was shown it was just the whole end was cut out it's just one of those things growing up in Australia we had a lot going for us we had so many repeats you know, we were the envy of the world, but no, they cut that episode to hell. Very, very true. So we've got to the end. My takeaway is two points, Rob. And I'll, I'll, I'll perhaps give my two and then you can 
reiterate by reaffirming how much you love it, because I know you do. <laughs> yes. The first point is to reiterate all through this, no matter how bad the story, and there's very few clangers in this era. There's almost nothing I wouldn't happily watch. But no matter what the story, Davison's performance is always incredibly good. And I never really appreciated until the last few years how good he was. I need to reaffirm that. But going back over the Davison era, I've realised how much his character has changed. From bland and helpless to incredibly strong and confident and frankly doctorish. I don't think he becomes doctorish until Enlightenment. And I don't think he really hits his stride until season 21. When he does, he is fantastic. And I think, as I said, hit after hit after hit. But I think it's a really slow burn this era, Rob. Okay. I I joke about the Davo era being the greatest ever. <gasps> Shock horror. Uh, <laughs> and I think that's largely due to it just being so close to my own heart. But that also doesn't mean I, I think it's actually crap and I'm pulling everyone's leg either. I think, just like I mentioned about season 19 and you were quite taken with this idea, I think the whole era succeeds in spite of itself. And by that I mean Sayward clearly isn't the best script editor the show's ever had. And JNT had some very definite ideas that weren't the best. I mean, he hadn't gone completely nuts at the time of Davo's era. He wasn't yet casting Colin Baker just because he was funny at a party and, and then dressed him like a thinly veiled version of himself, um, you know, all bright and colourful and Hawaiian shirty. But he was still putting the Doctor in a uniform and sketching out bizarre companions that didn't work and hiring weird writers and directors half the time when, you know, there was some real talent sitting on the shelf. It's no fluke that Robert Holmes returns to Who, having missed the entire Davo era, and writes one of its top stories. So when you add all of those things up, you think, how can this have succeeded? How can there even be a hope of something decent emerging? And yet we have Kinder and we have Earthshock, we have Enlightened, we have the Five Doctors, we have Planet of Fire and Caves, and we have some stories that are almost as well loved sitting on top of some, some more average stuff. Compared to the Colin Baker era that comes next, and made under much the same conditions, same script editor, same producer, and so on, the Davison era is really quite good, and I put a lot of that onto Davo's shoulders directly. Yeah, there's nothing in there I'll dispute. I think that's a very good summary. And just to go over something I said earlier, we, we had an episode of You and Who Talking recently where there was an essay written and read by Peter Cavanna on the topic of the memory cheating, and he turned that on its head quite nicely to the memory sticking. And this is something I've mentioned a few times now, by which he means if you see a particular episode at a particular age and you love it, your memory can easily stick so that 10, 20, 30 years in the future when a peer is seeing it, maybe for the first time and says XYZ is, is crap, it may be that technically XYZ is crap, but in your mind, it never can be and never will be because the memory has stuck. And for me, with some of these episodes where we've debated back and forth on, well, you know, it's, it's not the best or the Doctor's not the best in this and so on, my memory has stuck. And I think for some people, many people, their favourite era of Doctor Who might be similar, whether it's Baker or Pertwee or whoever it might be. Yeah, look, that's that's very fair and very lovely. Can I make a little tangential point here, Rob? Yes. One thing that I don't think has helped the Davison era, certainly in my mind, and I think in the mind of fandom generally, is the target range. Most of his books, I would contend, kind of fall into the middle of the most bland and dull era of the target novelizations. Most of them came out very quickly after they, they were aired on TV. The mm. last one that came out was Black Orchid. A year before that was Awakening, and then before that, you're basically down to 
them coming out sort of a year or so after they were done. But they're all very straightforward novelizations, and they've mostly got horrible, boring covers. They do. You know, this, they're just publicity photos of, of Davison or really simple and dull pieces of artwork. I think, you know, one of the things that has made the McCoy era live on in fandom so well is the target novelizations. They're, they look good and they're memorable and they're well written. Mm. Um, the Tom era and some of the, 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 the Pertwee era and some of the 60s era, they had these wonderful, you know, Malcolm Hulk novels or the, the early Terence Dix novels or the David Whittaker novels or. In the case of the Troutons, a lot of those later ones where Terrence Sticks had a bit more time and he's doing stuff like The Wheel in Space. Davison doesn't have those targets. He maybe gets one, and that one is Earthshock by Ian Marder. I think that's the one. Yeah, but I agree otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're, if you're a fan, particularly in the UK, who doesn't ever get repeats, and you are discovering who via the targets, I think the Davison era would have been a very dull one to discover by a target yeah that's fair although i must say the novelization of kinder helped me understand it more okay. as, as as a younger person i mean it's not a, it's not a great novel but it just it just helped me by reading it i kind of understood it a bit better fair enough yeah davo after doctor who what did he do and do we like the shows i guess i would say what hasn't he been in He's been in Toast of London, Death in Paradise, Jonathan Creek, Heartbeat, Tales of the Unexpected. He was even in an episode of Magnum, for crying out loud, and probably a couple of dozen more shows. But I guess the notable ones here, Dave, and I'll run through these one at a time so you can comment. A very peculiar practice. Did you watch that? Nope. It's fantastic. It's a black comedy. He's, he's a young doctor at a university. It's got David Troughton in it, who is fantastic. It's got Graham Crowden in it, who's even better. Oh, it's a treat. Yeah, I've heard good things. I've just never come across it, I'm afraid. Okay. Campion. Did you ever watch Campion? I've seen a bit of them. I'm not a huge fan, but not from the point of view of I don't like it, just from a point of view of it's something I've seen and never got to see the whole series. But what I've seen, he's really good in that. Mm -hmm. And it's got Davo back in the 1920s, which I think is just a really great era, especially for a younger Davo. He just seems to go so well in the 20s. Yeah, that is true. At Home with the Braithwaites. Yeah, he's good in that, but I never liked that series. Oh, Dave, I loved it. For people who haven't seen it, it's a family in Leeds. Um, they win a lot of money in the lottery, and it just it ruins everyone's life, basically. <laughs> and it's a comedy. Can I, can I highlight one thing he did? Yes. Uh, about a year ago, when I guessed on 42 to Doomsday, we were asked to pick the top five performances by an actor who played the Doctor in something else. And one of my five picks was Davison in a telly movie called Harnessing Peacocks. I've not seen that. If you can track it down, and it is available on DVD, it's this lovely little telly movie about a woman who basically makes her money as a very, not a high-class hooker, but as someone who sleeps with men for money. But she, mm -hmm. she, she calls them her peacocks, and she creates this sort of relationship with all of them. And it's all sort of interconnected and, you know, the housekeeper knows the father who knows. The, it's one of those sort of English stories. And then Davison walks into the middle of this narrative and he's really, really good in this. It's a really lovely performance from him. And I think it's a performance where you can see him moving from young, dashing, leading man into what we now think of him as being that really wonderful older character actor. You can kind of feel him transitioning in this. It was, it was the early 90s, I think. Wow. I think that might have been where jobs were drying up for him a bit. Yeah, look, I think it was. Because as I say, he 
he he had that problem that young dashing leading actors have in that at some point you stop being the, the young dashing leading actor and it's like well no no we hire you for your young dashing leading actor parts and you're going no, i can mm. do character no you can't you're, you're, you're a you're a you're a has-been young dashing leading actor um yeah. watch watch this happen to david tennant yeah exactly right i've got a few more i'll quickly rattle through them last detective did you ever see that no nope. very good stuff distant shores now this is one i've not even seen nope I read the description of this. It says it's kind of a dramedy, sort of like Northern Exposure or Doc Martin, because he's a doctor who gets transplanted out into a rural environment. And there's like a couple of seasons of it or something. I, I'd never heard of it. So it might be one I have to track down. Okay. Um, we also need to mention that he did the Probe series. Yes. Going back to sort of Doctor Who, what would you call those? They're a bit better than fan films, but... Only just. Only just. <laughs> Good point. Of course, he did Dimensions in Time. Yes. Where he just has a really bad headache all the way through, apparently. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's also done a lot of Big Finish. Now, people talk about Colin Baker. Oh, my God, Big Finish is the making of Colin Baker. I've never heard anyone say that about Peter Davison. No. Although we do have a letter coming up at the end of the show, actually in our next segment, where we do get some tips on some good Big Finish for Davo. But no, people don't really mention him in Big Finish. You know, it's, it's usually Sylvester. Colin is the standout. I guess because Colin was so disliked on TV, people always want to sort of say something nice about him, and Big Finish is the way to do that because he is genuinely good at it. Yeah, I also find that of the very, very few Big Finishes of his that I've listened to... They tend to be really quite faddish episodes, like the one where he goes to see the creation of the Cyberman, the one where he goes to see the prequel to Talons of Wen Chiang, the one where he goes to see the creation of the Mara. And they're all sort of very, oh, this is a really good idea, done very badly. And But a lot of them are also some of those weaker big finishes where, look, look sometimes they do it very well, but the Davisons I've heard have suffered a lot from the Oh, look, Doctor, the Mara's forming over there. It's something that's turning into a snake, and now it's doing this. And now, oh, look, it's doing this, and it's coming this way. And it's just so bad. Not all big finishes created equal. I'll say that for sure. No. Some of the writers get it, and they describe things in ways that sort of trick you into, you know, understanding what's happening without them being so overt. Yes. Um, briefly before we move on to the mailbag, Law and Order UK, Davo's been in that. Have you seen any of those episodes? Yeah, I have seen a few of them. He's one of the few good things in there. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Fr- frankly, him and Jamie Bamber are the only two good things in that series. It's not the greatest crime series, I'm sorry. So I think it's fair to say that whether it's just one-off episodes or whether he's, you know, a, a lead of some kind in a series, Davo has probably had... I think it's fair to say one of the best post-Doctor Who careers. Yeah, absolutely. I think probably, look, at this stage, without knowing what some of the new series actors will go on to over the next 30 or 40 years, I, I think it's very easy to say that. He's, he's had a wonderful career. He, he's very talented. And, you know, in, in some ways, he's probably also the biggest name to have been cast at the time that he was cast. I think so. I, You know, not being the right age, it's hard to perceive... When you read in the newspaper, oh, Patrick Troughton is the new Doctor, would, would people have thought of Patrick Troughton in the same way we would have thought of Davo as, you know, the all creatures great and small guy? Maybe some would. It's sort of hard to say. Mm. Uh, Tennant, I think, is probably comparable in some ways. Tennant was having a real breakouts period even before he was cast as, in, as the Doctor. Mm. But, you know, you know, I mean, let's face it, a guy who's been in all creatures and he's doing multiple sitcoms, you know, high-rating high, high rating sitcoms, 
at the same time he's being the leading Doctor Who. That's, I think he was pretty big. Absolutely. Shall we move on to our mailbag? We shall. So I'm going to start with a tweet that we had from the guys at the New to Who podcast. They've said to us when we've asked for comments on the Davison era, fantastic. Our Stephen is a super Davo fan. Recommendations include Castro Valva, Kinder, Enlightenment for being Counter Saywood stories. Mm, some good picks there. Some very good picks. And yes, they are good examples of uh, not being in the Saywood survivalist genre. Yeah, they're, they're a long way from Earthshock and Resurrection and, and things like that. That said, I like Earthshock and Resurrection almost as much as I like Kinder or Enlightenment. Yeah, absolutely. I think that you need mix in, a, in an era and they're a good example of the mix. Absolutely. Now, we didn't go out and solicit a lot of views for this episode because as you can see, if you look down at how long it's been running, we've been going for a long time. And this is without reading, you know, 10, 20 comments from different people on Twitter. But we have had an email from Mike Solko that I'd like to read. And Mike says, Hello friends, this month's topic is an interesting one for me as the Fifth Doctor era is perhaps my least favourite era of the original series. (gasps) Wash your mouth out, Mike. But I am always fascinated to hear why others love it. Over time, I've come to realise my dislike is in no way for the character or the actor. In fact, Davo is an incredible actor, but rather the interactions he has with his companions. Much of the bickering in the first series makes it difficult to feel attachment to any of the characters. I feel that we would have been better served with a more mature companion like Liz Shaw, who would have challenged him, but partnered with him. To avoid coming across too negatively, though, I want to throw out three big finish plays featuring the Fifth Doctor that are well worth everyone's time. Spare Parts. This one is almost as much of a cliche as saying City of Death is your favourite Who story, but it's well deserved. Mark Platt provides a tense script of the origins of the Cybermen with Davison and Sutton turning in great performances. Second, 1963, fanfare for the common men. The Doctor takes Nissa to witness the Beatles in their early years, only to find they have been replaced with a three-piece Liverpool band called the Common Men. Who are they and why have the Beatles been replaced? This one is a hilarious romp. And finally, the Starman. This features the original Trim time team in an epic space adventure. Everyone gets opportunities to shine, even Adric Waterhouse. This is a great example of how those early Davison stories could have gone with a team that wasn't on each other's nerves. I hope my dislike of the era does not find me disowned for long. Cheers to those who love it. The fact who can be so many things to so many people is what makes it lovely. From Mike Solko. Yeah, thanks for those thoughts, Mike. And I actually echo a lot of your views, particularly at the start of that email. Yeah, and look, really good advice on the on the big finish plays too. Um, being a Beatles fan, I think I might have to listen to this uh, fanfare for the Common Men one. That sounds like fun. That has piqued my interest, I will admit. Mm. So, Dave, that's that's it for Davo. That's it for Davo. So, before we wrap up, a couple of little things we need to say. Yes. First of all, I've been mentioning in the last couple of episodes new TV series that are starting and what I think of them. And one I wanted to highlight this month is I've seen the first episode of Young Sheldon. Oh, yes. So this is the spin-off from The Big Bang Theory. Now, I discovered The Big Bang Theory towards the end of season one where Will Wheaton tweeted about his appearance in it. And I thought it was really good for about two and a half years. I dropped it, though, several years ago when it stopped being about the nerds and became just another sitcom. So I approached Young Sheldon with real trepidation but I was really impressed by episode one. It is it, it, So it's basically about the Sheldon character growing up in regional Texas as this super smart, you know, eight-year-old or nine-year-old. 
it's done without a laugh track. So that already sets it apart from the Big Bang Theory. But I think a lot of fans will really appreciate this because this is, seems to be a series about growing up different or growing up as a bit of a loner. Jim Parsons, who plays Sheldon in The Big Bang Theory, is the co-executive producer, whatever, on this. And he, as I'm sure many people would know, grew up himself in regional Texas as a gay person. So mm. he knows what it's like to be, you know, different or on the outside. And he talks about, you know, his character is, you know, smarter than other people and a nerd and into geeky stuff and what it's like to be that person in, you know, 1980s rural Texas. Mm. So I think a lot of fans will relate to this show. I've only seen the first episode. It's all that's gone out so far. But even if you are not someone that thinks the Big Bang Theory is very good, because, look, I agree, it's turned, turned to crap, give this a try and see if you like it. It's very different. I'm looking forward to seeing it. I've I've thought this would be good from the get-go, as I, as I think I might have told you when we've been chatting on Facebook and things. Because I've been a Big Bang Theory fan, I agree it's gone downhill. I am still, however, watching it. Oh, well done. Yeah, I agree the episodes of today are nothing. They're not a patch on season one, two, three, and so on of the early stuff. Not a patch. Fair enough. Now, moving on to something I want to talk about here at the end, and it's interesting because you talk about a show about growing up. I've been watching Big Mouth on Netflix. Have you caught Big Mouth at all? No, I haven't heard of this one. This is an animated show on uh, Netflix, quite new. It's probably only been out for the past month or even less at the time we record this. And it's really rude. It's rated R. And it's about all the awful things that happened to you in adolescence. So there are male and female characters, and if you think of all the awful things that happened during puberty to yourself as a male or a female, it happens in this show in shocking detail. <laughs> I can't even go into it, Dave. We'll, we'll get an explicit rating on... on uh... It sounds a bit like a tonight on a very special episode of. It's not like that, <laughs> I take it. No, it's not like that at all. It's hilarious. It's got voiceovers from Fred Armisen and Maya Rudolph and people like that. In the first episode, all in in every episode, actually, the, the main character is followed around by a hormone monster who no one else can see. And he's always encouraging him to, uh, I can't really say, do naughty all right, things. All right, all right. I will, um, <laughs> if you say it's good, I will check it out. And yeah, and so there are episodes that focus on boys and what they go through, girls. Um, there's an episode where one of the characters thinks he's gay for example, and, and to give you a taste of what the show's like, he goes up into the roof where the ghost of Duke Ellington lives in their house. Duke Ellington is always giving them advice. So Duke Ellington calls down some gay friends, including Freddie Mercury, who then belts out a huge show number to uh, to talk about being gay. <laughs> this, uh, this, is, this is either going to be terrible <laughs> or wonderful, and I need to know which it is. Uh, in a later episode, Duke Ellington, uh, the boy is worried about his manhood. And so Duke Ellington says, well, drop your pants. And he gets Whitney Houston and a few, and Prince and a few other ghosts to also comment on this guy's manhood. I'll stop there. It's bizarre. (laughs) It's, it's bizarre. It's rude. It is rated R. So if you watch it, don't be shocked by it, please. (laughs) But I've, I watched it from start to finish and I thought, you know what? Although kids of, say, 12 or 13 aren't technically allowed to watch this, I think if they did watch it, they'd think, oh, okay, yeah, this is awful, but it is kind of funny as well. And they might see some humour in the crap they go through. Okay, I'm going to have to check that out. The first episode is very full on. Okay, I'm warned. 
now finally another one from me we are coming up on our big babylon 5 episode this is one i think we'll go out and solicit lots of opinions on dave do you think yeah absolutely any thoughts about babylon 5 this is the second in our alternate galaxies suite of episodes where if you've seen the series you can enjoy it along with us but if you've heard of this series but never seen it we're going to talk about how to get into it and what it's like Absolutely. And if you don't know what we're talking about, because this is your first episode of the show or something like that, we recently did Buffy as an alternate galaxies episode. If if you're into Buffy or want to know more about Buffy, tune into that. And now we're going to do Babylon 5. I'm very much looking forward to this one. Yeah, me too. But of course, next month, we're going to have our usual regular episode, our main episode. And our topic next month is going to be, in the lead up to Christmas, Regenerations. Yes, it seems appropriate, doesn't it, that on the 26th of November, we'll start talking regenerations a month out from another regeneration. That's right. We'll talk about which ones worked, which didn't, how they've evolved over time, and what that might mean for the coming big regeneration. Mm, There might even be more news leaking by then, too. There could well be. And you'll Mm. find out what I thought of the Dominators. (laughs) Well, I'll be hanging to hear that, Dave. If you need no other reason to turn out, you need to... Find out what I thought of the Dominators for the first time in 12 years. Exactly. But that wraps up the Davo episode. I really enjoyed talking through all those episodes and everything about Davo, his companions, his costumes, the people writing the shows. I think we covered a hell of a lot, even if we have run over time. I think we've been very thorough. I'll be interested to know what people thought of it. Yeah, it's, it's always hard to know what to include and what to leave out, but I think we touched on most of the things we should have talked about. I think so. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed the Davison episode and we'll talk to you again in a month. We'll see you then. Bye.
And actually, just while I glance at my notes here, I missed something out for Castrovalva. Let's rewind briefly. If Castrovalva no longer exists, how does the celery on Davison's lapel still exist when he leaves Castrovalva? Well, I've kind of just assumed that he must replace his celery on a fairly regular basis because it would go off otherwise. <laughs> well, it would, but after he leaves Castrovalva, he's got the celery from Castrovalva, but that's an imaginary construct, so how does it exist in the real world? That is true. That is true. Anyway, I should have brought that up at the time. Ah, it's a stupid idea anyway. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, I mean, it is one of those wonderful JMT ideas that is just so stupid. We're going to have a piece of celery on your lapel. Okay, cool. Why? Who cares? It's just going to be good. 